On Father's Day, it's natural for fathers to think back to the birth of their children. And I remember when my son Calvin was born and how because it was a boy I got to name him. That was the deal. And how we named him Calvin after the great theologian and reformer John Calvin. But also, at the same time, after the great literary figure Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. And if it's possible, over the years, I think he's been named more and more after that Calvin. In, in fun ways, he seems to, to embody that kind of spirit. You know, I, I love these Calvin and Hobbes comics. They're, they're one of my favorite things to read. Uh, and one of them that I think of when I read the text today uh, involves Calvin walking into his mother sitting on a chair, reading and enjoying a cup of tea. And he's wearing this helmet, this big space helmet with the visor down in front of his face and a cape tied around his neck. And she says, what's up today? He says, nothing so far. So far? Well, you never know. Something could happen today. And if anything does, by golly, I'm going to be ready for it. And he sort of marches away with a purpose. And then in the last frame, the mother looks at the reader and says, I need a suit like that. I think many of us know that feeling. When something unexpected comes and we say, I was, I was not ready, by golly, for that. I needed a suit to get me ready. I needed something to prepare me. Well, the scriptures tell us that as believers, we do have a suit like that in many ways. We've been looking at it over the past several weeks. It's called the armor of God. We've talked about how this is a battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual darkness, spiritual adversaries. And we see that there are several elements that he identifies specifically, the first of which was the girdle of truth, or the belt of truth, which girded the loins. The second was the breastplate of righteousness that we put on to protect us, uh, our, our vitals in that way. And here we see the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel. Now, shoes seem to me like the least important of kind of military gear, right? Like, it seems like, like soldiers would be too macho to care much about what they put on their feet. In fact, shoes and shoe buying especially has over the years stereotypically been associated with women, right? When comedians get on there, they don't ever say men love to buy shoes. They say, oh, women and their shoe shopping. And it's presented as something kind of frivolous even. Well, tell that to George Washington who, as they were marching in the winter, uh, found that half of his men had not been adequately shod. Shod, by the way, is just the past tense of shoe. Shoed. And were walking around barefoot or partially barefoot on ice and frozen ground. And, I mean, toes were popping off all over. Or tell that to Julius Caesar. Part of the reason he was such an effective general was that his men were all outfitted with footwear that allowed them to get where they were going on foot in short periods of time so they arrived while the enemy still thought they had a day or two to prepare. And suddenly, boom, here's Julius and his guys. Or tell that to Officer John McClain, who fought in the Battle of Nakatomi Plaza with no shoes on whatsoever. I think it's telling that the, the makers of that, that classic movie said, how do we... Kind of physically manifest the idea that this guy's unprepared, how, how fish out of water a story this is. Ah, have him fighting in stocking feet, running over broken glass, glass, you know, guns going off and everything. 
This, this is important, having your feet properly shod. Because before tanks and treads and Humvees and all this stuff, to get men and, and battle from one place to another in ancient times was all about the feet. By their feet, soldiers advanced. They stood firm and held tight and fought by the fleetness of their feet. They would outmaneuver the enemy. If a soldier's feet were wounded, he couldn't stand and fight. He couldn't uh, pursue his opponent if they should run. And if the battle turned against him, he couldn't even flee or retreat himself. And already in the 8th century BC, a broken shoe was shorthand for military weakness. And the opposite was true as well. We see in Isaiah 5 this description of coming armies and how effective and destructive they will be. We read, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. You see, two of those foundational pieces of the armor of God there, right? The girding of the loins, not a waistband, that's what we're talking about here, is loose, and the footwear. Not a sandal strap is broken. So Paul's thinking, though, not of 8th century B.C., but it's quite clear he is thinking in terms of the Roman legionary, the standard-issue Roman soldier that you would see walking around, heavy infantry. And because they were heavy infantry, they needed heavy-duty footwear. And indeed, they had it. Part of the standardized equipment for a Roman legionary was the caliga. That's the Latin term, sometimes called a half-boot. You know, it looks like a sandal. Don't call it a sandal if you're talking to somebody who's really into this kind of stuff. You'll get a lecture. It's not a sandal. But it, it's like a sandal. We might call it, I might accidentally call it a sandal. It's got open toes. It's got a largely, it's laced tight, but it's kind of open on the top. And that was intentional. That was strategic because they might be moving through streams or even rivers. And if their feet get wet and the leather kind of soaks up water, if it's all closed up, it's not going to dry quickly. You're going to get more blisters and chafing, and that's going to slow you down, and that can make the difference whether you win or lose a battle. And so it was open, and, and it was ready to go. It was a little bit more uh, maneuverable. In fact, as, as recently as the Korean War, there was reports of men having these boots on that got wet during the day. They didn't properly dry, and then when night came and it got really cold, their feet would freeze, and we're back to Revolutionary War problems already. If only they'd had access to this Roman technology. Well, they'd figured it out for their own environs anyway. Now, aside, sometimes you'll read even a translation of the Bible or hear someone teach on this, and they'll suggest that what he has in view here is not the sandal or half boot, but rather greaves, these kind of brass plates that would cover the shins. Get that out of your head. Not only do you not bind those to your feet or, or put them on your feet, these were fallen out of fashion for Roman infantry by this time. Very much so. We're thinking of what, what you've seen in pictures. Basically a sandal that kind of goes up the leg and it goes onto the shin. It's made of heavy-duty leather. It's strapped tightly to the ankle and then there's these kind of nice ornamental straps that would wrap all the way up even to the knee and it holds it on tight. These shoes had two soles because that way you could be doubly protected from what was beneath your feet. They were held together by these dome-headed iron hobnails, which then the heads of which would stick out the bottom and stud the bottom of your feet, basically turning them into cleats. 
so that they could get much greater traction. Because, well, Rome had perfected the paved highway system more than anyone had before them. A Roman soldier was sent out to the fringes of the established empire and beyond to fight on mud or grass or gravel or dirt or any kind of surface you can imagine. And they had to be able to keep their feet from slipping, to stand firm in battle. The Caligae also protected their feet against uh, these kind of anti-personnel devices, kind of bundles of nails all together, uh, caltrops they're called, that, and sharp sticks that might be set in their path to slow them down. They were protected from those as well, the literal snares of the enemy. You can start to see why Paul finds this to be such an important part of the armor. Now, the Greek here in the text is literally having underbound the feet. Because for these guys, these were perfectly tailored boots that were then tightly bound onto their feet, ankles, and, and uh, lower leg. I can appreciate this very much. I have freakishly wide feet. Freakishly wide. 4E. I have to go to special stores, and they all look at me like, <laughs> yeah, we'll go get the weird duck shoes for you. Uh, sometimes Larry Gibbs and I will commiserate about this. He also has very, very wide feet. In fact, we were trading catalogs the other day about how, where, we get these, where we get these shoes. It, it, because the problem is if you, if you buy a standard width shoe big enough to fit my foot, it's way too big of a shoe. My ankle starts to hurt. I get, if I walk around with that kind of shoe and it's not real tightly bound to my foot, I'll get a weird like half tennis ball coming out of both ankles on both sides. It's really uh, painful, it's really annoying, and it slows me down. And so it is very important that these things fit, that they were tightly underbound to the feet so that they could move quickly and confidently and again, stand firm. I'm going to keep saying that. Stand. Stand firm. Why? Look at your Bible. You didn't close your Bible, did you? Verse 14. You're like, well, we're only one verse. I practically memorized that one verse we're looking at. Look at the one before it. Verse 14, because that's where we find the actual command here. Right? The, the command is not put on some shoes. That's a modifier of the command. The command is stand, therefore. And then come the modifiers, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having strapped on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. These are all ways that you can stand, therefore. And obviously, if we're talking about standing, the feet are important. If you've ever gone from a job where you sit at a desk all day to a job where you stand on your feet all day, I have. At the end of the day, you don't go, oh, my aching, you know, back or something, maybe that a little bit, but mostly you go, my dogs are barking, my feet are hurting. It's important. In fact, the feet were so important for the soldier, they even played a role in what they were called. These studded half boots we're talking about were not worn by superior officers, people who might be moved around more on horseback than on foot. And so the common soldiers who wore these caliga were called caligati, bootmen. That, that was the identifier of them. They wore all sorts of armor, but they were identified by their boots. In fact, it wasn't even just the common soldier. The third emperor of Rome was Caligula. You hearing that? Caliga? You know what that means? Little boots. Very cute name for a very psycho emperor. But they called him that because when he was a little child, his father, who was a Roman general, would bring him to the front lines in a teeny tiny cute suit of armor, including little 
Kaligai, little, little uh, half boots. And they started calling him that as kind of a term of endearment. Here comes little boots. Now he was again wearing the whole thing, but they focused on the boots. They were understood to be incredibly important. And even today, what do we call a new recruit? A boot, right? They go to boot camp. Even though they're not just wearing boots, they're wearing the whole fatigue and all of it. And here Paul is calling us to be spiritual boot men, boot women as well. In that we are fitted and underbound with the boots that are the gospel of peace, or rather the readiness of the gospel of peace. We look at uh, the King James Version, which I, like many of you, have long since memorized. Uh, you know, you get a lot of these verses, you try to memorize them in the New Translations, and they kind of blend together with the, the old King James, and you go, this is hard to do. The King James says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I don't like doing this, but I'm going to say that's not the best translation. And not anymore, anyway. Probably it was perfectly adequate in 1611. Words slightly shift in meaning. This has all been preparation. Putting on the girdle of truth is preparation. Putting on the breastplate, meaning you do it beforehand. No, we're talking here not about just preparation, but about something more specific, readiness. If your Bible says preparation of the gospel of peace, even if it's the King James, I urge you to write in the, don't cross anything out, write in the margin preparedness, because at least that's closer. Readiness. Preparation is Packing your parachute. I used to live with a guy who was a skydive instructor, and he would go, he'd pack parachutes, and he'd get paid for it. And, and that was preparation for a future jump. Readiness or preparedness is not just having packed it, but having it strapped on your back, because at any moment, you're going to be sucked out of a perfectly good airplane, and you're going to have to survive. That's what's being talked about here. Readiness. And so don't miss this. When we're talking about the armor of God, these first three things are not truth righteousness and peace sometimes it's taught that way it's truth righteousness and readiness or preparedness the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and i think there's an intentional contrast here by the way we're in the midst of this battle talk and weapons and armor this gospel has the power to bring peace in fact for us the gospel is peace why? Because by it, God has opened a way of being reconciled with him. That's the good news. Gospel means good news. The good news is we've been reconciled to God. He is now on our side. He is not our enemy. He is our friend. He is our ally. Romans 5, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified means that you have been declared righteous on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's us, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's what's being described here. 
Having been justified by his blood, we are being saved by his life. This is the power of the gospel, which Paul, by the way, has already laid out earlier in Ephesians in chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17, he said, Jesus came to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. You hear married in that, what seems to have a tension coming to kill hostility and bring peace. War and peace kind of together in this tension. He also does the same thing in Philippians 4, 7, by the way. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall garrison your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Military language about having received a peace that passes all understanding. Having received this peace, we put it on our feet as shoes, the readiness that's given by this gospel, and are able then to bring the fight to the enemy. Again, not a human enemy, but a spiritual enemy. And we can stand against this enemy because we have peace. Peace with God. Peace of mind. That thing that the world is always looking for, but always failing to attain. Inner peace. Lasting inner peace. And because we have that peace, we can walk through the trials, through the valleys, over the mountain passes, over the snares that the enemy lays. That great Scottish Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren wrote, The quiet heart will be able to fling its whole strength into its work, and that is what troubled hearts never can do. For half their energy is taken up steadying or quieting themselves, or is dissipated in going after a hundred other things. This is the secret weapon of a Christian, and one that we all too often fail to put on at the ready. Which is ironic because it itself is readiness. While the world continually searches for the next inadequate balm to bring a temporary peace to their troubled minds, or the next distraction from the tumult of their hearts and minds, we have the gospel of peace there. And the readiness that it gives to put on as shoes for our feet, and they're miraculous shoes, by the way, you know, shoes tend to wear out rather quickly, I find. As an early Father's Day gift, uh, Kelvin last week gave me a, uh, a heart attack uh, when we were at, at Yellowstone, and we were about to go down a uh, windy trail, uh, and much of it was kind of gravel, and, and somebody in designing it was like, you know, it'd be funny if the scariest parts had no handrail. And we were going to go down and look at this beautiful waterfall. It was breathtaking and amazing. Uh, but as we're going down, Calvin's like, huh, check it out. All the tread's gone from the bottom of my shoes. I'm like, oh, that's, this is great timing to hear that news. Thank you very much. Even these amazingly manufactured and, and, and custom craftsmen uh, produced Caligulae, uh, Caligai, rather, uh, would wear out quickly enough where your average soldier would go through three pairs every year. They would just burn right through them because they're mocking and marching and fighting and all the stuff that was very rough on them. And yet, when we read in Deuteronomy 29 about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, we're told that their shoes never wore out. God miraculously maintained those shoes so that they would last the entire time to remind them of his faithfulness. Well, that is the kind of shoes that we have in the readiness provided by the gospel of peace. 
The false peace of embracing and affirming sin in order to be at peace with the world or letting the culture jerk us around whichever way it wants to, that will wear out long before the end of the journey. But the gospel peace, it never wears out. This true peace is eternal, rugged, stronger than anything we might trot upon. The concrete or rocks or snares beneath our feet. This means that we have the surest footing imaginable. Jesus referenced sure footing from a different angle in his teaching, talking about building not on sinking, shifting sand, but rather on the bedrock. Well, here we have kind of the picture of taking that sure foundation, that bedrock, with us everywhere we go because it's been strapped to the bottom of our feet. In the gospel, we stand firm knowing that since we have peace with God through Christ, God is our strength. As we read in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's not by our strength. That is by the strength of the one who outfits us in his own armor. And you know, this is what makes our faith unique amongst all the religions of the world over the ages. You hear it again and again in these kind of pluralistic days that basically all religions teach the same thing, so can't we kind of just boil it down to its basic parts, be nice to people, don't steal, don't kill, etc., and then we'll all just hold to that religion, and there will be less infighting and all the rest. Well, the problem is that while there is a great deal of overlap because we all have a law written on our hearts, or at least the broken fragments of a law, and we all desire to reconnect with our God, the law is not what saves us. It's not what's at the core of our faith. The law, what you do, what you must do to satisfy God, that's at the core of most religions, but not ours. What's at the core of our religion is you've broken the law. Instead, then, look at what God has done for you. In Christ. That's why we talk about the gospel. Good news. It's announced. It's not something you do. It's something that's been done for you. And now you can strap that to your feet and go out and live a life of thanks and gratitude and service for the God who's done that for you. And I think we see a a sharp distinction here. When you look at the Old Testament, and everyone was commanded to bind to their hands, signifying what they do, what they put themselves to, and to their forehead, signifying kind of their thought life, who they are, their identity. What? The law. The law of God. What you must do. And they would wrap it around with leather cords and things, not unlike what you'd see wrapped around the legs of Roman soldiers. In the New Testament, we're told that... What we focus on is what has already been done, not what I must do. I'm the gospel, and we bind this to our feet so we can take it out to the nations and say, there is freedom already won for you in Christ Jesus. This brings the confidence that God has everything under control, and I think that is part of wearing these gospel shoes. We read in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or maybe even more closely related to this text, Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. We can trust that God, who is in heaven, looking down on us, sees that our feet are steady 
that we are standing firm, that if we put on the gospel shoes, that we will not fall. The devil kind of ruined this verse for a lot of people, but it's also in the Psalms that if you throw yourself right uh, off, the, off the pinnacle of the temple, he says he'll, he'll catch you and you will not uh, strike your foot against a rock. It's actually just a promise that if you're not tempting God, but rather serving God, he will keep you safe. He will keep your feet safe and steady. And, you know, it goes beyond this as well. This is not just something going on within us that we will remain faithful and therefore we will remain untouched. Paul has already called our whole lives our walk. Remember that back in chapter 4? Walk worthy of your calling. Your walk then being your, your whole life and how you live it. Everything you think, say, and do. If that's the case, and if this is already kind of a subheading of that, it makes perfect sense that the shoes on our feet during that walk are the gospel. Because it undergirds everything, our whole walk, our whole lives, every action, every thought, every desire must be rooted on the foundation of the gospel. The readiness of the gospel of peace. So what exactly does this readiness refer to? We're ready for what? Everyone wants to know when you read a text, now what do I do? And that's not bad, by the way, as long as our intention is how do I live a life worthy of what Christ has done for me, not how do I earn God's love by living a life that fulfills his commandments. Rather, we want to, we want to hear what Jesus said. If you love me, obey my commandments and say, we love you because you saved us. Let's see how we can live this life. Well, I think the answer is threefold. First of all, it means a willingness to do whatever we're called to do. Now, that's very broad, but we're talking about soldiers being ready to go. And a good soldier, like a good employee or a good friend, isn't going to say, here's my specialty and I don't do anything else. I know a lot of guys in military service and a lot of women in military service, I've never heard any of them who say, oh, what I do is this specific thing and nothing else. No, they say, yeah, I have a specialization in, you know, whatever, uh, communications, specifically this kind of thing, and then, you know, it gets really technical these days. But I also mop floors, or at least I used to when I was a lesser rank. I also do whatever I'm told to do, whatever needs to be done, because that is how you have to operate if you're going to be successful on the battlefield. And I've also thought, of, you know, I've known some pastors. I'm reverend. I don't, I don't set up chairs. You kidding me? I'm the pastor. Somebody else sets up chairs. The, the gospel calls us to be servants, right? So we are going to be ready to do what we need to do, to follow in Jesus' footsteps and see how he said, you know what, I'm just going to put on the, the uniform of a slave right now and wash your feet to show you my love and how to love one another. This means a readiness, a willingness to endure whatever we're called to endure for the gospel in this moment, to suffer whatever we're called to suffer for the gospel in this moment. Having those shoes on means I haven't locked in how I'm willing to suffer, endure, and serve today. I'll find out as the day goes on. I need a suit like that. You got it right here. Secondly, it means a readiness to advance. I've been preaching for 20-some years, and I've preached on the armor of God a good number of times, and I've always said the only offensive weapon in the mix is the sword, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And I mean, that is true. You could, you could bop somebody with a shield, I guess, or you, know, you could headbutt somebody with your helmet, but these are defensive things. The sword is offensive. But I think maybe i got to back off from that a little bit. If we're talking about all the equipment, including the gospel shoes, 
this is, these kalagai are going to help you hold fast in defense, yes, but also to push forward in an offensive way. And again, we see the intentional irony here. As we war against principalities, powers, cosmic rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places, as we bring a violent, full frontal attack, a spiritual assault on the enemy's strongholds, what we're doing is bringing peace where hostility and malice had once reigned. I think this is what we were just praying that we need to see in our community today and in many communities that are seeing just a rise in people's uh, readiness not to bring peace, but to bring violence when provoked. As believers, we remember the words of Jesus, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If you are children of God, what that looks like, and this is difficult sometimes, is that we are not easily provoked ready to fight or argue, rather showing gentleness and patience and forbearance. The bringing of peace, it comes in a general way like this, just how we live our lives and how we treat people, but also in the very specific task we've been given, the Great Commission, which is strap on those shoes and while going, make disciples of all nations to proclaim the message of the gospel of peace. And perhaps this is why this gospel readiness is not pictured as the breastplate or the belt or the shield, but the shoes. Because in the ancient world, it wasn't just troop movement that was dependent on good footwear during battle, but communication was carried out by runners. There are great tales of this. A marathon is called a marathon because at the battle of marathon, Pheidippides... He, he realized that he needed to get a message from here, 23 miles away, to uh, the headquarters in order that the, all would not be lost. So he threw off his armor, and some say they even threw off his clothes, and he just ran, full-on ran, all 23 miles, and made it just in time, delivered his message, and then expired in order to make it a super dramatic Greek story. But in doing that, he showed us the importance of messengers, of running, of putting on shoes and bringing a message. Even amongst the gods, they had no better tech for sending messages. Mercury, Hermes, a, Greek, a Roman and a Greek god that kind of morphed together into one as happened, as Hellenization uh, took place. You got this guy who's the messenger of the gods, and what's his most uh, iconic piece of uh, fashion? Winged shoes. He doesn't have big wings on his back, but teeny tiny wings on his shoes. They, don't make fun of them. They were a gift from Zeus. So. But he's got these winged shoes because he's got to be fleet-footed. He's got to bring the message when the message is needed, if it's urgent. And the message for us is urgent. And it was a, a very important job to be a messenger in the ancient world. Even, even today, I think there's still people employed as bike messengers in New York who are tearing around from one place to another bringing documents and things. It's an important job to be able to bring the news. But in the ancient world, you had to be very careful how you did it. Because if you brought bad news, that could be bad news for you. I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament when Saul died. And the guy who brought the news to David of Saul's death paid for it with his own life. Because bringing, that's where we don't kill the messenger, right? You did not want to be the guy to bring bad news. Well, thank God that we are messengers who bring good news. Again, that's what the word gospel means. 
This is what's referenced in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In Romans 10, Paul takes that passage and he applies it to specifically this, us bringing the good news of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet. What does that mean, that whoever wrote it is weird? No, it means that they, they would stand on the watchtower and they could tell by the way the messenger was coming, whether it was good news or bad news. You could tell because it was bad news, they were kind of holding back, oh, a stitch in my side. If it was good news, there was kind of a, a cloud of dust behind them. Like when Jehu would ride in like a madman and they'd go, oh, it's Jehu. This is good news and you could see in the feet, the feet themselves even without wings, were beautiful because of the news they brought. That's our role. That's such a, such a wonderful role to have. How would you like to be the guy who brings good news? You know, okay, I'll take the job. Good work if you can get it. John the Baptist, he had to prepare the way beforehand, right? Repent, you brood of vipers. Get, make straight the way of the Lord. We get to bring the good news after it's accomplished. Jesus died for your sins. God loves you. There is salvation in his name. Although, honestly, it's largely the same job. We look at Luke chapter 1 as Zechariah is prophesying to his own child, John the Baptist. He says, And your child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Feet, peace. There it is. Before Jesus was even born, we're reading about the footwear of the readiness of the gospel of peace. John the Baptist wore it. Zach the Baptist has got to wear it. You've got to wear it as well if you follow Jesus. And for this task, then, we must always be ready. As we were looking at the uh, belt or the girdle of truth a few weeks ago, I mentioned that as they ate the Passover, the Israelites had to do it with their loins girded like they were ready to go. They also would do it with their feet shod to show that they were ready for their journey to go out and possess the promised land. In the same way, we too must always have our feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace to go out and bring the good news to the land that is already part of the kingdom of God, to the very ends of the earth we're called to go. We don't take our gospel shoes off, not ever. Another good reason for them to be open on the top, right? You've heard people say, you know, I, I was born ready. No, you weren't. But you see newborns, they're not ready for anything. Easy to trick them and surprise them. But we can say, I was born again ready. Because the gospel equips us with the readiness of peace. The gospel equips us to be ready for whatever the enemy might throw our way. To be fleet-footed, to stand firm. And to advance, bringing the gospel with us to multiply the effect that it has on the nations and on this earth. Others have said, I'll die with my boots on. That's like an old cowboy movie thing, right? It means I don't, I don't want to give up and, and go off to pasture. I want to I be working. I'll die with my boots on. I mean, that movie Tombstone, 
Doc Holliday looks down as he's dying and he's got bare feet and he goes, oh man, or something a little bit more PG-13, I don't know. I think of a movie I saw that was a, a depiction of the crossing of the Delaware and the battle, the brief battle that ensued as, as Washington's troops, many of them without shoes, surrounded the Hessians and said, oh, you got shoes aplenty and blankets and medicine and food and all this stuff. And on the way in, as they were sneaking in on Christmas morning, what happened? They saw a watch house. And, and uh, Jeff Daniels is, is uh, George Washington in this depiction. He says to Alexander Hamilton, uh, who's way less cool than he's become lately. <laughs> he says, uh, he's kind of a gawky teenage kid in this. He says, hey, can you silence that watch house? And he says, yes. And he takes two other guys, and they go in, and these Hessians, they're hungover, they're sluggish from the night before, and they're just starting to put their boots on. And they never get to get them on. They die with their boots off. To not have your shoes on means that you are not ready. And it generally means you will not succeed, John McClain notwithstanding. They give us mobility to adapt and move. To have your, your shoes off means that you are feeling sedentary, lazy, sluggish. These gospel shoes give us resiliency against the traps, the snares, the schemes of the devil. Temptation, discouragement. They give us patience. How, how easily are we distracted from heavenly things? by just little, little inconveniences. How quickly can I find my whole frame of mind derailed from thanking God for all of his gifts to, are you kidding me? You're just starting to write a check for all that stuff now? He's been scanning it for 20 minutes. You could have had the check ready to go. Are you kidding me? That's what's going to derail me? That, that, that's, that's walking around with no shoes on. And, and I would say it's not any better than being caught with your pants down, spiritually speaking. In the imagery of this passage, kicking off our shoes is not going to prepare us for battle. The late Howard Hendricks used to quote his father, a World War II veteran, who would explain that you could tell where a soldier was by what he complained about. That they're far from the front lines, the complaints would be cold food, warm beer, old movies... But the closer you got to the action, you'd say, what do you need? And they'd say, more men, more ammo, more air support. Are we ready for a battle or not? If we're far from the fight, if we're, if we're not even thinking about the fact that we are involved in a battle, a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places, well, then our minds are on civilian affairs and they overshadow the greater concerns. We're thinking instead about my comfort, my safety, when immediate danger comes, though, suddenly soldiers become single-minded. Their sole purpose is to win the battle. Mind and body become far more vigilant. And this is the state in which we are commanded to live by a passage such as this. To be marked by readiness. John McClain caught without shoes on is a sure sign he wasn't ready. You and I caught without shoes on is a sure sign we're not ready. And if you've ever raised small kids you know that not having shoes on is a sure sign they're not ready. You ready to go? Yeah. Are your shoes on? Put your shoes on. You mean, you know, people just get like cross-stitch that, put it on the wall when you've got little kids. You knew we were leaving 20 minutes ago. Why aren't your shoes on? Well, we knew when we put our faith in Jesus and began following him that there was a battle ahead of us. We need to strap our shoes on. 
And unlike what Dr. Hendrick's father faced in World War II, we can actually forget that we're on the front lines in a battle. One of the main schemes of the enemy is to use the comforts we enjoy, to use the frivolities, trivialities, superficialities of life to keep us preoccupied with little things that couldn't matter less so that we will sit around with our spiritual shoes off. From the very beginning, we've been warned against this. We see how in the garden, a lack of readiness is what leads to the downfall, the the fall of man. And throughout, yeah, everyone always quotes that passage that we already read a couple times here from Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. But in Nahum 1.15, we read, look, there on the mountain, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. We've got to think about our feet. You, You ever go a day without looking at your feet? I bet you don't. When you look at your feet, think about it. These are the things that bring good news. Where am I bringing it today? How can I be ready today? How can I wear the readiness given by the gospel of peace? How can I bring peace into a world that is increasingly hostile? How can I bring the love of God into a world where love is confused and hatred is even called love and vice versa? There's no better journey for a foot soldier than to spread the news of peace. This is the message that we are given the privilege of delivering. This is the job that we are called to carry out. And as we go out to battle, this is the ultimate goal. To make disciples of all nations. To proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. You ready? Have you put your shoes on? Let's put them on. Let's keep them on. And let's be asking God to to aid us in the battle to keep us ready, to keep us sharp, and to keep us on guard against the evil one. Lord, we thank you so much that we do have this armor. We thank you that you've outfitted us better even than the Roman legionaries who wore custom-tailored leather half boots that, that would protect their feet and give them grip. Lord, we know that the gospel is the greatest thing that we could ever possess And that you tell us to put it on our feet as shoes strikes us almost as blasphemous at first until we remember that our feet carry us everywhere and that you have called us to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we pray that this would be on our minds, that it would be stirring in our hearts, especially as we draw closer to the end of August when we are going to have a time of evangelism training. And Lord, we do pray that we would see not only a increase in interest and desire to carry out gospel ministry, but Lord, the fruit of that being wrought. We, we trust that you will give us fruit for the laborers, Lord, and we, we know that there is so many different ways we plant, others water, others plant, we water, you're the one who makes it grow, and we pray that in all of this, our goal would always be the glory of your name. When we suit up, we would not fly under our own banner, but the banner of the cross, that we would want to go out and make much of our King. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.